I want to clarify some things from last week. In particular, the difference between the golden calves in the northern and southern Israel and the many, many high places and spreading trees all over the country. The refrain we'll see for several of the next kings in Israel is King XYZ did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he failed to remove the high places, and the people still made sacrifices in the high places. The golden calves were set up by Jeroboam I to replace Yahweh, and Yahweh was not worshipped there unless something changed that we don't know about. Jeroboam set up the golden calves to stamp out the worship of Yahweh in Israel. And God always hated those golden calves because when they were set up, Jeroboam said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is the great, quote, sin of Jeroboam that is about to come into play in a big, big way. Obviously, the Israelites still worship Yahweh in some way, somewhere, but most of them also worship Baal and other idols. All of this worship takes place in the high places and under all the spreading trees, not at the golden calves. At least as far as, as we know, as far as I know. Last week created a huge power shift in Israel and Judah. Remember that King Joram of Israel and his nephew, King Ahaziah of Judah, had joined in battle against the king of Aram. But when Joram was wounded, both kings left the battlefield and returned to Jezreel, leaving Jehu in command of their battle forces. This was a terrible tactical error and resulted in just the opening Elisha needed to complete the Lord's instruction to anoint Jehu king over Israel. Jehu proceeded to take over all of Israel, killing Joram, Ahaziah, Jezebel, and all of the princes descended from Ahab. Finally, the Lord's prophecy had come to pass, and Ahab was wiped from the earth. Now, I want you to note that all of this is male-centric. When they talk about wiping out Ahab, they are talking about wiping out all his male descendants. The females do not count and are basically ignored unless they grab power, as Jezebel did. Jehu then proceeded to gather and kill all the prophets of the idol Baal and tear down his temple. But Jehu left the two golden calves in northern and southern Israel, and he left all the high places and altars under the spreading trees where the people worshipped Yahweh but also worshipped other idols. Religious practices, like the people, were a melting pot, what scholars call syncretism, where you take a little of this and a little of that, and that's your religion. Now remember that King Ahaziah of Judah was killed while he was up north in Israel. The story of his death and what happened to his body is different between 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, but it sounds like his body is returned to Jerusalem for burial. So who is in power in Judah now? Well, Ahaziah is only 23 when he dies, and the real power in Judah has always been in the hands of his mother, Athaliah, who is herself a daughter of Ahav of Israel. Being Phoenician, Athaliah is an avid Baal worshiper. She's promoted Baal worship in Judah, just as her mother Jezebel had promoted it in Israel. And she's even stolen articles from the temple to use in the house of Baal. When Athaliah hears her son is dead, she loses no time in grabbing the throne for herself. Athaliah seizes the throne in a coup exactly the same way every king in this region and this time period does it. She kills off the entire royal family of the previous king. It doesn't seem to matter to her that these are her own grandchildren. She orders their immediate execution. Now, Athaliah has a half-sister named Jehoshaphat. We don't know Jehoshaphat's backstory, but based on this description of her as Athaliah's sister, we presume her father was Ahav, but her mother was not Jezebel. She would have been born in or near Phoenicia to the northwest of Israel, just as Jezebel and Athaliah were. 
but she's apparently broken with the family and moved south to Judah, and she's married Jehoiada, a powerful priest, perhaps even the high priest, in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. She is definitely the rebel in the family. She's apparently given up Baal worship and become an ardent follower of Yahweh. When Jehoshaphat hears that her sister Athaliah is attempting a coup, she knows that all the princes are in mortal danger. She runs to the nursery, grabs a baby, a little prince named Joash, and with his wet nurse, they run for the temple. Once there, the baby and his wet nurse are hidden away in a bedroom for six long years, while Jehoiada the priest slowly builds a resistance movement against the cruel Queen Athalia. The captains of the temple guards recruit resistance fighters from among the Levites and from among the major families throughout Judah. It takes a while, and finally, when Prince Joash is seven years old, the time comes to attempt to overthrow Athalia. The priest, Jehoiada, calls in the captains of the temple guards and the captains of the Karaites, who are typically hired as royal bodyguards. He swears them to secrecy and then reveals the boy prince, the true heir to the throne of Judah. There's a big festival coming up, and all the people of Judah will be at the temple, and on the Sabbath, when the temple guards are due to change shifts, none will go off duty. All will stay to defend Prince Joash as the true king. When the day arrives, Jehoiada arms the troops with the swords and shields of King David from the temple and deploys them at strategic points around the boy Joash, around the temple, and along the route Queen Athalia will likely take from the palace. Then, when the people are assembled, Jehoiada brings Joash forth and declares him king. He puts a crown on him and gives him the covenant of kingship, and all the people and all the guard troops cry, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Jehoiada and King Joash and the people together make a covenant to be the people of Yahweh from now on. Queen Athalia hasn't even bothered to show up to the festival Sabbath. She doesn't find out anything is going on until she hears the priests blowing their trumpets and hears the people rejoicing over a new king. She rushes to the temple and sees little Joash standing by the great pillar with a crown on his head, and she cries, Treason! Treason! and tears her clothes. The priest, Jehoiada, quickly orders that she be captured and taken outside the temple precincts to be put to death, along with anyone else who might choose to follow her. Then the people destroy the altars and house of Baal, which are apparently very close to or even inside the temple precincts. The priest of Baal is killed by the altars, and Jehoiada sets up new officers over the temple of Yahweh. When they take the boy Joash to the palace, he sits on the throne of kings. Wow, this has been a major political and religious shift, both in Israel and Judah, simultaneously. Both had been thoroughly entrenched in Baal worship and ruled by cruel rulers, both male and female. But now both have new kings, one a young military commander and the other a seven-year-old boy. Although the high places and golden calves of Israel have not been destroyed, at least Baal worship has been banned. Will things take a turn for the better for these tattered, beleaguered nations? Well, it certainly seems like things are going to to end well, at least in Judah. Joash continues to be guided by Jehoiada the priest, who seems to be the true power behind the throne. King Joash orders that all the contributions made to the priests from voluntary personal vows or the required annual offerings be used to repair the temple. You remember that many of the original furnishings have been carried off or given as tribute to foreign powers. But 23 years later, when King Joash is 30 years old, 
he snaps to the fact that nothing's actually happening. Seems like the priests aren't too keen on handing over the money. King Joash instructs the priest to start turning over the funds, and he sets up a box in plain view where everyone can see the money gets taken to the Secretary of the Treasury periodically. This works a lot better. Temple repairs finally begin in earnest. Sacrifices resume, and as long as the priest Jehoiada lives, burnt offerings are presented continually at the temple. But eventually, of course, the priest Jehoiada dies, and his son Zechariah takes his place. This is not Zechariah the prophet who has a book later in the Bible. We're going to come to several Zechariahs between now and that particular one. This Zechariah, the priest, is a good man, but he does not have the power base his father did. The entrenched political officials are able to sway King Joash. Joash abandons the temple of the Lord, abandons Yahweh, the God of his fathers, and he begins to worship Asherah poles and other idols. The Lord sends prophet after prophet to King Joash and the people, but they are all ignored. Finally, the Spirit of God comes upon Zechariah, and he stands before the people and says, Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You have forsaken the Lord, and thus the Lord will forsake you. Enraged by this, King Joash orders Zechariah to be stoned to death. The people attack Zechariah in the very courtyard of the temple, between the temple itself and the altar. And as he dies, Zechariah cries, May the Lord see this and call you to account. The stoning of Zechariah is a terrible sin, and it is the culmination and fruit of the idol worship of King Joash and the people. They do not want to hear the truth. They do not want to obey the commands of the Lord, which would entail humility and generosity and trusting the Lord and compassion on their part. Even Jesus speaks of this particular event when he excoriates the religious leaders of his day some 800 years later. Well, you can probably guess that since the king and the people have forsaken the Lord God, their protector, we'll probably see some foreign armies come attack, right? And your guess would be correct. The foreign nation in perfect position to harass both Israel and Judah is Aram. When we left off last week, Aram was already overpowering King Jehu in Israel, and Israel's boundaries were shrinking rapidly. King Jehu eventually dies, and his son, Jehoahaz, becomes king in Israel. In the Hebrew Bible, the golden standard of wicked kings are King Jeroboam, that first king of Israel and the one who set those golden calves up, and King Ahab. So you find kings compared to them. So when it says Jehoahaz is as wicked as Jeroboam, that's saying something. Because of this, the Arameans are able to keep Israel under their thumb. Jehoahaz himself did have a change of heart later, but the people refused to give up their idols. So eventually Jehoahaz dies and his son Jehoash becomes king. Meanwhile, the Arameans set their sights on King Joash of Judah. King Hazael of Aram marches on Jerusalem. And King Joash, in a fit of desperation, takes all the gold and precious objects he and the people had just made for the temple. And he sends those as tribute to prevent Hazael from sacking the city. This strategy only partially works. The accounts in Second Kings and Second Chronicles are somewhat different, but it sounds like the Arameans kill and capture a bunch of people and plunder the city. But they don't raise it to the ground. When they leave, though, they leave King Joash severely wounded. Ever since the incident with the stoning of Zechariah, King Joash has been despised, and so his officials conspire to murder him in his bed as he lays wounded. 
So we're running through these kings like water. Let's fill out our table of kings. When we started the day, King Joram of Israel and King Ahaziah of Judah had just been killed by Jehu. Jehu reigns in Israel under intense pressure from the Arameans, while in Judah, Azahiah's mother, Athaliah, kills off all her grandchildren, but misses um, the one who is hidden in the temple by the priest and his wife. When Joash, who is the rightful king, turns seven years old, Jehoiada stages a coup and puts him on the throne of Judah. Some time passes, and around 814 BCE, Jehu dies and his son Jehoahaz becomes king. Jehoahaz is wicked. He dies, his son Jehoash becomes king in Israel. He is also wicked. It's during the reign of Jehoash of Israel that Elisha the prophet draws near to death. King Jehoash goes to visit Elisha as he lays dying, and as he's there, he sees a vision of the chariots and horsemen of Israel and tells Elisha what he sees, and thus Elisha knows his last moments have come. Elisha tells King Jehoash to get a bow and shoot arrows out the window. These, he says, are the arrows of victory over the Arameans. You will completely destroy the Arameans in battle. Now go get the arrows. And then he tells King Jehoash to strike the ground with the arrows. Jehoash strikes the ground three times and then stops. And Elisha cries, why did you stop so soon? Now you only defeat the Arameans three times in battle. And with those words, Elisha dies. Elisha is buried, and it is said that sometime later, some Israelites were burying a man near his tomb when suddenly they were set upon by Moabite raiders. The Israelites tossed the man's body into Elisha's tomb and run for their lives. But when the man's body comes in contact with Elisha's bones, the man comes back to life and walks away. And sure enough, during King Jehoash's reign, he does defeat the Arameans three times. And although he never throws off their yoke entirely, he is able to recover much of the territory they'd taken. It is around this same time that King Joash of Judah is wounded by the Arameans and is killed off by his own officials, possibly um, priests or other officials in retribution for his murder of Zechariah, you know, maybe because he stopped the flow of money to the priests and diverted it to temple repairs. We don't really know all the details, but it's never good when your own officials kill you. So it is that Joash's son Amaziah becomes king of Judah. You can see that in both Israel and Judah, there was a brief glimpse of the possibility that people would turn back to Yahweh. In Israel, it was during the reign of Jehu, and in Judah, it was in the early years of the reign of Joash. But there never was a permanent change of heart of both people and king. These two nations are pursuing their idols as vigorously as ever. It is here that will slot in the book of the prophet Joel. It's only about three pages long. Most of the prophets write their books in the form of poetry, which is kind of interesting, Interesting, I think. And that's how the book of Joel is written, too. We really have no idea when Joel lived or wrote, but his words make a lot of sense at this point in the history of Israel and Judah. Here is my paraphrase. Have you ever seen anything like it? Wake up, drunkards! Wipe the spittle from your mouths. The attack is upon you. Our enemies have teeth like lions. Like swarm after swarm of locusts, they have stripped us bare. Even the house of the Lord is cut off. Our fields are bare. Our vines dried up. Proclaim a fast, a day of mourning and lament. Gather everyone from young to old and cry out. To the Lord. Blow the ram's horn in Zion, sound the alarm. Tremble, tremble, for the day of the Lord draws near. It is a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and fog. There has never been a day like it, nor will there ever be again. Before it comes a consuming fire, behind it 
burns a hot flame. Nothing escapes the day of the Lord. It sounds like war chariots and vast troops. Everyone runs for their lives. In the face of the day of the Lord, earth and heaven shake. The sun and moon go dark and stars forget to shine. The Lord sends forth his voice ahead of his forces. Vast are those who do his commands. Who can withstand the day of his coming? But even now, the Lord says, Turn back to me. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn back to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in love. He withholds punishment. Let the priests cry, have pity on your people, O Lord. Do not let them be disgraced, nor let foreign nations who worship other gods say, we told you Yahweh is nothing special. Please claim us as your own Lord. Have mercy on us. And the Lord will answer like this. I am about to send you blessings of wine and grain and oil. I will scatter the northern attackers. Do not be afraid. But rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. I will restore the years the locust has eaten. And you shall be completely full and satisfied. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is none else. You will no longer feel ashamed. And after that, I will pour out my spirit on you all. Your children will prophesy. The elderly will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. I will pour out my spirit on everyone, from the lowest to the highest. All who call out to the Lord will escape. A remnant will survive. And one day, I will gather all the nations to the Valley of Judgment, and I will come speak to them about their treatment of my people. What you did to my people will come upon the heads of your own sons and daughters. So now is the time, you nations, to come face the Lord with all your warriors and all your might. The Lord roars from Zion. But for his people, the Lord is a refuge. You, my people, will know that I am the Lord your God. I am the one who dwells in Zion. And my nation, my city, Jerusalem, shall be holy. No trespassers will be allowed to enter it. And on that day, mountains will drip with wine, and hills will flow with milk. All the waterways of Judah will rush, and a spring will issue right from the house of the Lord, while Egypt and Edom will become desolate because they shed innocent blood. And Judah shall be settled forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So beautiful. That prophecy, though short, packs a huge punch. I bet you recognize some phrases in there. Some of them even made it into Handel's Messiah. This little book is actually a great thumbnail sketch of how many of the books of prophets of the prophets are laid out. So we'll look a little closer at this in our breakout groups today. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, Joel two got us started. We got we've got sidetracked on the end times. You can't, you can't. That's this is important, actually. That that I want you all to, I know many of you have studied the prophets, the end times, Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, just all of these prophets before. I want to take you through them in a new way. And so I want to you to approach them 
um, with as clean a slate as you can. Just set. It's kind of like what we talked about when we started this whole adventure about setting aside any baggage you bring at the door, and let me take you on a hike. It's been a really long hike. We're going around the world, but. <laughs> It's so worth it. It's so worth it. And I have to tell you, these, the prophets and what they have to say, this is where you see the heart of God. All this other stuff is just all the history of the relationship between God and his people. And you are now prepared with all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of relationship to then see what happens when we have what we would nowadays call a come to Jesus meeting, you know? (laughs) So in, um, let's just run through the questions. Question one, uh, what was the main message of the first seven verses in this book? How is Israel portrayed um, and notice the verb tense in um, verses six and seven. What's what's the picture here? What y'all have? Things were bad, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it wasn't bad to come. It was already bad. Mm-hmm. And, past and tense. yes, past tense. And and also a level of of devastation that 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 is going to be very hard to come back from, which is what we were talking about i mean with the with the bark being stripped from the trees and the trees dying. i mean that's years and years and years and years of recovery if you're able to recover and that's also years and years of um being destroyed i mean it didn't happen overnight that these things happened they it took generations so things have been bad for a long time and and who was making it bad the attackers from the north yes they're attackers from everywhere yes all their attackers so it wasn't the lord punishing them you know although there have been some dips here and there you know where the lord's tried to get their attention but but there they those have not been styled as punishment they have been they have been styled as pay attention you know and then the lord always swoops in and saves them you know when they do turn back to the lord we're getting to a part of their history where they are refusing even under duress to turn back to the Lord. So it's, it's, it's getting tough. All right. So now uh, question two, what is the call to action in Joel in chapter one, verses eight through 14 and who in particular is called to action? Well, it it looks like, you know, the, the call is to, to, to mourn, to repent, to turn back to God. And it seems to be talking to everybody. I mean, it's talking to the priests. The, the priests, yes. It is yeah. calling to everybody. But there is a particular yeah. call to the priests. The priests have a responsibility before the Lord that is different than the people. I mean, everybody, his, own, her, his and her own self need to turn back to the Lord, but the priests are the ones who need to call. The priests, the kings, the leaders need to call that forth and, and set that tone and make that pattern. All right, so we and when we get to verses 19 and 20, there's a change in point of view. Joel stops talking to the people and the priests and the leaders, and who does he start talking to? Lord. The Lord. That's right. And that we have seen from from the beginning, from the the very first prophet we ever saw, which was Moses, (laughs) you know, that that the prophet stands in between the Lord and the people and hears both sides and intercedes with the Lord and exhorts the people. The prophet in and of themselves has no power whatsoever and the better prophet they the the more self-effaced they are between the lord and the people the more of a conduit they are the better prophet they are. so when we um in question four we get to chapter two which 
introduces a major term, the day of the Lord. So what were some of the characteristics of the day of the Lord? Vengeance. Pardon? Vengeance. I didn't see those words used anywhere. I did not see the word vengeance or wrath. What, what, what were the actual words used? Darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. There you go. Thick darkness. Um, an army such as never been seen before, nor will ever be seen again in the ages to come. You know, when we were talking about that, Gail, that made me think of the three hours when Christ died on the cross and that he was the army to come for us and to take away our sin and that nothing more would be needed. I didn't know if Joel knew all that no. or if he was working on something else, but that's what it spoke to me. Yeah, no, I think what Joel was, I can see the connection of the darkness, um, but what Joel is, is, Joel's having visions is what's happening. He's, he's having visions, you know, and he's describing them in this poetry. Uh, and, and, um, he, what he says, look in verse five through nine, he says that what is coming, he's to, to, trying to describe what it is that he sees coming in or senses coming in this darkness. It is something that is quote, like warriors has the appearance of horses and then in verses 10 and 11, it talks about that when this happens, the earth and heavens both tremble and quake, earth and heaven, that the sun and moon are darkened. And then in verse 11, who's in the lead of whatever it is that's coming? The Lord. The Lord. It says, vast is his host. So this does not sound to me like the Arameans or the Assyrians, <laughs> right? This, somehow we've shifted, you know, all this first destruction was by all the surrounding nations, the Arameans, the Moabs, the Edomites, the et cetera, the et cetera. But, and, and there is a threat of army coming from the north because the armies have been coming from the north, like locusts. But somehow, in talking about the day of the Lord, the vision has shifted to something else. And this something else is the Lord showing up himself. Okay, so... Um, that covered so, so, you know, is is this then god bringing retribution on israel or god coming to defend israel because this is before the whole part of the promise of god exactly, exactly. okay hold that thought we're going to get to that right now because that is the question that should arise like who is this for, you know, um, and who is this towards? So we've done, we've answered question five. So question six says, um, does what we're describing sound like something that has already happened to Israel in our story? This whole earth shaking, Lord showing up stuff. No. I think it kind of sounds like the plagues in Egypt. It does though those were at Egypt um, and, and um, this one, it, so that it does sound very much like what happened in Egypt with the, you know, the darkness, right? The sun and the moon going dark. Um, locust. <laughs> pardon? The locust. The locust. Yep. 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 Um, but this is cast as a future event. You know, this is cast as something that is coming right? 
Joel is shaking in his boots because something big is about to happen and he's trying to describe what it is. So um, look especially at Joel um, chapter two, verse six. Um, And it says, if I can get my thing to update where I can see it, verse six. So the, the whatever is coming has the appearance of horses like um, war horses they charge um, they leap on the tops of the mountains like flame crackling from place to place like a power like a powerful army drawn up for battle it doesn't say it's an army it says it's like that it's, he says this is the sense I'm getting um, they be and it before them all pe- before them people's are in anguish. All faces grow pale. So that translation will vary, of the word peoples, will vary from from translation to translation. If you put several translations together, what, what it's saying, the Hebrew word is am, I think, which is just basically the word for all people. It's not just Israel, Judah, the Lord's people. Okay. So what's in view here is this includes Israel and Judah. It's all, everybody. You know, what part of all do you not understand? Okay. So so, um, then, thank goodness, the Lord shows up in verse 12. What does the Lord say? Come back to me, and I will, and I will take you back. What does he say that that coming back entails for the people? What do they need to change? Their hearts. Their hearts. They need to change their hearts. Yeah, he says, "Stop doing this outward show of tearing your garments. Stop with the outward show already." Change your heart. Tear what's in your heart. And he also calls the priests to weep and to intercede. So then in verses 18 and 26, what will the Lord do if the people listen? This is 18 through 26. What's the Lord going to do if they actually turn back? He'll take care of them. You will have pity, right? And specifically, what's he going to do to, what does he say about armies there? Um, Verse 20, he says, I'll remove the northern army far from you and drive it into a parched and desolate land, its front into the eastern sea and its rear into the western sea. So is the, the northern army... Is that Aram? It, it's it's going to be Assyria is who it's going to be. But, oh, Assyria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, he, but so we've got two different armies in play here. Can you see that? We've got the northern attackers who are coming to attack Israel and Judah from Aram, Assyria, whoever. Those are the northern entities, <laughs> right? But we have also this whole day of the Lord force happening that is going to affect all peoples, including Aram, Assyria, and everybody else. So there's two things in play here, all right? And that day of the Lord language keys you in to which one's being talked about, okay? So remember, you know, as in fact, later on, I, uh, there was a, there's a verse in um, verse 27, there's a special phrase that we've run across earlier in our Bibles that I, I told you all, go through your whole Bible and mark this phrase. Do you see it? What is it? I am the Lord and, and I am the Lord, am your God and there is no other. I, the Lord, am your God. And that we learned all the way through way back was always an emphasis on a particular vow. It was like, 
bold underline, pay attention to what I just said or what I'm about to say, if it's positioned that way, you know? So what the Lord is saying, um, he also mentions those locusts again. What does he say about the locusts there in around 18 through 26? repay for the years the locusts have taken the lord's going to restore what the, for everything those locusts ate and destroyed now i want you to notice that all this locust destruction like julie said earlier has been happening for hundreds of years those people suffered and died. And the Lord says, I'm going to restore everything the locusts ate. So I want you to see the Lord's perspective on this. This is part of the Lord's perspective on life in general, on our lives. The Lord does not measure our lives by the blink of the eye that is who we are here on earth. The Lord is with us in our suffering as he was with the people who suffered under the locusts in all those years. The Lord is going to restore those people. It's it's part of the continuity and wholeness of our life in God, who we are in God, all right? So this is part of the, this is, to me, the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Part, they're part of a nation. They're part of a whole. They're all these poor people. There were people out there, as we talked about earlier in the lesson, worshiping Yahweh, you know? And the locusts ate, <laughs> you know, them and their land and everything about them. That we are more than what we are now. What we are now is important. What we are now makes a difference. The stands we make make a huge difference. But the Lord will and can restore the deepest of our hurts and our losses. That so are you, this, sorry, are, you, are you seeing this then as a, um, a specific promise to the nation as a whole or a specific promise to individuals that this moment on earth is only a moment of your existence? I see what Joel is saying is a specific promise to the nation of Judah, okay? In that time. He, he, he only ever speaks about Judah. He doesn't talk about Israel, you know, so he's clearly from Judah. Um, but so he sees this as everything he's saying, he's saying to Judah. I'm saying, look at what he's saying what that means to the people of Judah and understand how that applies to us. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I hope yeah. so. Okay. And we're, we'll see more of it, but this is, this is, this is what the prophets give us. It's a huge gift. Um, so then uh, just as, we underlined the word and circled the words, I, the Lord, am your God, as like special. Underline and circle the day of the Lord. That is a key phrase, keying you into, this probably isn't talking about Aram, <laughs> you know. So notice that when you see it, it means there's a shift in focus in the scripture. So onward and upward. So in verses 28 through 32, it's one of the most famous passages in all of scripture. It's going to pop up again in the New Testament. Put it into your notes about what the day of the Lord means. Um, uh, and, and, 
and this is where the just the beautiful, beautiful prophecy about um, the Lord pouring his spirit out, you know, just gorgeous on absolutely everybody. And notice that he says that this will happen afterwards. You see that in verse 28? So it's like there's this whole series where where the the way that, that Joel is structured, Joel sees the threat, sees what the armies of the world have done to Judah. Joel sees the armies of the north coming. And that that will happen. They will be, Judah will be destroyed by the armies of the, you know, Israel, all of it, will be destroyed by the armies of the north unless they repent and turn back to the Lord, okay? And and he says, it's it's coming. This is happening. And, and then there's this, you know, not only these northern armies, but there's this whole day of the Lord thing coming, you know, that I don't even know what that is. It's like an army. But it's not an army. It's like, oh, it's like an army. <laughs> you know, I'm having a hard time describing it. And he says, so, so, and the voice of the Lord is ahead of that, whatever that is. And the Lord says, even now, in this moment, in your utter desperation, when all the armies of the North are bearing down on you, return to me with all your heart. And I will take you back. I will have pity on this in verse 18, on this land and on these people. I will send you grain and oil. I will remove the northern army. So see, this is all talking about the northern army part. It's like we switched out of that day of the Lord segment and we're back into the you know northern army part. Notice these things when you're reading prophets. Otherwise, you're going to get it all balled up and confuse yourself and everybody else. So... Um, he says, you know, if you turn back to me, Judah, I will defeat the northern armies and restore your vineyard. You will be satisfied. It will be wonderful. And then we get to verse 28 after everybody in Judah has been protected and happy and wonderful. Then afterwards, after that, I will pour out my spirit on everybody, all flesh, all flesh. Not just Israel, not just Judah, all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy, male and female slaves. I mean, he names people who are not Israelites, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and he says, I will show portents in he the heavens and on earth. Um, the sun will turn to, there's blood and columns of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So notice in verse 28, this happens after they're protected from the Northern armies. Then the spirit is poured out on everybody. Then the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And that has not happened yet. All that day of the Lord stuff hasn't happened yet. As far as, you know, it seems like we've noticed. <laughs> okay. So, so there is a, a beautiful reference down in 32 that says, Everyone then in that time, that day of the Lord time, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape whatever this like an army, like war chariots thing is in the darkness that's coming. The Lord, the Lord it sounds like the host. He's the Lord of hosts. And these are the hosts coming you know the voice who do you think the voice is we have another word for him what is the other word we call him Yahweh. the word who's the word, oh, the word. oh yeah right? jesus. jesus right okay so when it says the the voice will lead this whatever this is that's coming okay 
and and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And even on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, where this horrible battle is happening, whatever is happening in that day of the Lord, there shall be those who escape. Because apparently something will be threatening Zion and Jerusalem in that day. And the Lord's going to show up in a big way. Now, what exactly that threat is, Joel was not given to see. He just saw the Lord coming. So there shall be those who escape, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So this is this is like a big deal. Um, and you're going to see this imagery fleshed out. We're going to find out more about this as we go through the prophets. This is just like the outline, okay, that we're getting in Joel, which is why we're putting him in here. So, so is, is this section here, since this hasn't happened yet, right? is this where a lot of people get the idea that this is talking about the end times and um, the Battle of Armageddon? Yes. 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 Because clearly this part hasn't happened. Jerusalem's, you know, still there. And the Lord is not dwelling in Zion right now, as far as I know, you know. Um, and, and there's a couple of other things here in Joel that, we, that help us identify this. Um, Joel, if we're moving to chapter three, there's another uh, famous passage that introduces, that says, then in those days, so those, that's all code for, you know, day of the Lord stuff, then in those days, which we call in times, okay, then in those days, I will restore Judah. I will gather all the nations and look in verse 14. Um, I don't know if if it this can can vary from from uh, translation to translation, but where does he say all the nations will be gathered? My version is the valley of decision. Yes. The valley of decision. Isn't that interesting? It's not the valley of the Lord will destroy you. It's not the valley, you know, it's the valley of decision. It's like the Lord, even at that very last moment, says, you have a choice. Just before that, he tells them, be sure to come with all your might, all your power, all your swords, whatever you got to throw at me. It's like, we're going to go mano a mano, folks. Okay. And he says, and this will be in the valley of decision. And there will be multitudes there. What you did to my people. He's going to speak to the other nations now. Okay. The Lord is differentiating between the people who call on his name, which we clearly know is a subset of Israel, Judah, and now other people, right? Um, just because you were part of Israel or Judah didn't make you like magically exempt, right? <laughs> so, so the Lord is going to call, um, call the multitudes, the other nations, everybody else to account and say, what you did to my people will be done to you. It, it's like you're going to fall in the pit of your own making. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people. And the Lord will dwell in Zion, even as Egypt and Edom are desolate. And then look at verse 18. What is it that that is going to happen. Somebody read verse 18. In that day, 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Fountains shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the water and the Wadi Shittim. And water the Wadi Shittim. Yes. So that has clearly shifted again into this whole day of the Lord part. You know, this whole, all of this is day of the Lord kind of events. They haven't happened. This part hasn't happened yet in the history of the world. And one of the markers of when that happens, not only is this huge, you know, battle attack um, where the Lord shows up with the army hosts of heaven, the nations are gathered together in the Valley of Decision, but also the other market marker that we're going to find several other times in scripture is water will come forth from the house of the Lord. Sometimes it's called fountains. Sometimes it's called the river. Sometimes it's called a stream, but we're going to see that marker many times. So circle in your Bible. That is a characteristic that from wherever in Zion, the, the Lord dwells. Presumably the temple, maybe it has destroyed by now. I don't know, you know, but wherever the Lord is dwelling in Zion from that spot, water will begin to flow. And that has, and the uh, shatim is, is uh, also in um, the word for acacia trees, which grow in a desert land. So it's just saying water is going to flow into the parched lands. And how does the story end? What is the very last two verses It's a promise to Judah that they will be avenged and will be there forever. Yes. Yes. So we're going to, we're going to, that is the end of Joel. It was super short, but keep it kind of in your mind as how to look and understand the pieces of the other prophets that we look at. It's very helpful. And it gives you some key words that help you know when they flip from what's happening now to what's happening in the day of the Lord. And that was when I was younger and first starting this whole adventure. Um, one of my biggest frustrations was when people would say, well, that's an end time prophecy. And I'd say, how do you know that? How do you know that's an end time prophecy and not that one to Edom or to Moab or to whatever? Because you don't know that until you've studied the context. And you don't know that until you slot that prophet into the story to the people he was talking to. And you know what the circumstances were. Then it gets really easy to tell the difference between things that the prophet is talking about are going to happen to the people in that situation. Versus things that are have not happened, will not happen, are in time prophecies, will happen later. So pretty cool, huh? Makes you wonder what they thought of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we didn't see this in our earlier you know, the prophets we've come across so far, like Jonah, and you know, we've done a couple of little one, little off the wall uh, kind of things. This is the first of the real prophets, the ones that are talking about the coming cataclysm and the end times. So this is the beginning of all of that. And it's, um, and I imagine the people had no idea what to think about that. Right? We're still wrestling with it oh yeah all kinds of theories yeah well, and, it, and it seems like even i mean i remember in a couple of lessons back with i think it was elisha or maybe it was elijah where a lot of the people at the time thought oh yeah those prophets are just crazy and they <laughs> babble and crazy stuff and so i'm wondering if since there wasn't this great turning back <laughs> um 
if they just thought, oh yeah, he's another one of those crazy prophets. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get to one in the next week or two that, that um, is, is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Uh, we're going to, we're going to hit Amos and he's, he's really wonderful. So. so this is a, this is a format question. Yeah. Um, the fact that this is written as poetry, I was kind of speculating in our small group and wondering if it was put down as poetry as more of a way for people to be able to memorize and pass on either as a poem or as a song because it would be easier to memorize all this if it was done in that kind of artistic performance format. Absolutely. Definitely. Yes. Um, And also, as we saw in the Psalms, Hebrew itself is a language that is meant to be heard, not read. And there, there is, there are many times that they have rhyming and puns and repetitions, you know, for, for three and yet for four, da, 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 for three and yet for four, da, 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 da. It's like, and so they're set like this. Um, I doubt that Joel wrote it down as poetry originally. I expect Joel was pretty traumatized in the moment. (laughs) And as I said, you know, we're coming to the end where these lifespans begin to, you know, be lifespans that reach through up to and through the cataclysm itself. So um, uh, people who knew Joel uh, certainly would have lived through the cataclysm and you know, or right up to it, um, where it's just not that far away at this point. Um, and, and so his words took on a lot more importance and got preserved. So do you think that the people who, who would have written it down, you know, once they were in exile, um, that they would have interpreted this prophecy more as this was the justice that was going to come down and free them from captivity? Yes. Yes, definitely. Yep. I have a question because more of a historical question. I know that with a lot of different people groups, a lot of times they use... I guess you would say drugs to help with the visions. Hallucinogens. Yeah. Hallucinogens. Did the people at this time also, or is that something that they didn't do at all? I would expect there were that they did drugs. I mean, as long as you have had plants, you've had mushrooms <laughs> and, and okay, other so that, could, that would also add to this confusion as to when God is speaking through somebody and when God isn't speaking through somebody because it kind of sounds similar amen Renee very good yes yes and that's the precise place we find ourselves right just this week oh my gosh I was on an email thread with my the church of my childhood you know, I'm on their listserv and there was a person on there with a doom and destruction, you know, word from the Lord. And, and some of it was pretty vile and directed at, you know, the LGBTQ community, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, a number of us pushed back, um, there's a there's not an agree a, a consensus at all within this particular community as to where to land on that. There's the people who think this and the people who think that, you know. Um, but for all of us, you know, and it, and after I had pushed back, the the author said, "Well, you clearly, you know, have serious issues with what the Lord told me to say." <laughs> Like I didn't even bother to answer that, you know, because I look at that and I think, you know, that this, I think, what if that's not the Lord's message at all? That wasn't Jesus's message. 
that's not what Jesus left us to say. What if that's not the message? And what if that's not what we're supposed to be speaking? Look at the fruit of what you're saying, you know? Julia, I I thought you would, when you said that, I thought maybe your pushback was the message. Yeah, you know, and some, and, and privately, you know, another person reached out to me and, and I had recommended some books and, you know, some resources and, you know, I don't stand up and fight people who won't listen. Um, It's not worth it, but I will, someone else had stood up and said something. And when that happens, and I know they're about to get slammed, body slammed, I will go stand by them you know so um it was that sort of a thing and the the tone at least on the part of the folks who are standing together on this was very kind and generous and but pointed you know that 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 that's not right and of, and of course the answer was you know a bunch of um bible verses slung at us um and and how you are taken out of context well it's just take this yeah it's just not misunderstood it's not understood solidly and well and it's how they were taught and what they truly believe and i i had more of a problem with i mean i have a problem with it obviously but i did have more of a problem with the language and the content that kind of thing you know I know that's not love. All righty. I guess we're you know, kind of done. Yeah. I think, uh, of course, a lot of people uh, think they can treat the Bible like a regular book that they can read from cover to cover and they get it and they understand it. It's, yeah. it's uh, one-dimensional. Yeah. It's not written down like... A, a normal book is because it's not one book. It's a library of books mm-hmm. from all spanning thousands of years. Um, and so that's why I felt like this series of classes, despite how long it takes, is really worth doing. Thank you. And I thank you for for it because I'm learning so much and it's helping me so much because there was a while not too long ago, I was ready to say, okay, you, you stay over there and I stay over here because I don't want anything to do with God. And I'm now learning that hmm, some of the stuff that's been said to me wasn't really what God was meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, to me, this is, is girding you up. This is preparing you a a really good foundation um, from which it would be hard for somebody to um, put you in a tailspin ever again. Love to you all. I'll see you next week. It gets crazier from here. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye.